Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of Dress Media. one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dressed listeners, the subject of today's podcast has been written of by his biographer, Carol McCarney, as, quote, we would see him hanging in the East Village looking cooler than cool. So cool, it seemed uncool to interrupt his coolness. <laughs> Damn, I want someone to say that about me one day. I know. Right? <laughs> we are talking about perhaps one of the most underappreciated fashion designers of the 20th century. The name Stephen Sprouse might not be immediately familiar to many of you, but as a longtime friend and collaborator of Debbie Harry and Andy Warhol, Sprouse's fashions and art defined the downtown scene in New York during the 1970s, 80s, and into the 1990s. And honestly, so much of what we continue to see now coming down the runway today, 50 years later, I mean, Sprouse was a visionary far ahead of his time, and he has been called the, quote, first to merge street culture with high fashion. He emerged onto the fashion scene as a 14-year-old prodigy, which is fascinating, who rose like a phoenix from the flames again and again amidst critical adoration and simultaneous commercial failure. And these are actually just a few of the points that fashion curator Nilu Pedar joins us to speak about today. Nilu is curator of textile and fashion arts at the Indianapolis Museum of Art, where the exhibition Stephen Sprouse Rock Art Fashion recently closed in early April 2023. And I'm sure many of our listeners now are very familiar with the fact that we have been on a little bit of a hiatus taking the show independent for the last few months because yes. we keep talking about <laughs> this over and over again. Um, so this interview is actually something that we conducted many months ago, and it was always intended to air alongside uh, the exhibition still being open. And as you know, Cass, we were so far ahead, of, you know, in our production schedule, producing content at that point that are going independent through a little bit of a monkey wrench um, into our schedule in the intervening months. So I'm afraid that this is one of those episodes that simply didn't line up exactly where we, we wanted it to air. So our sincere apologies to Indianapolis Museum of Art and also Nilu about the delay in airing this episode. But my question to all of you is, will this exhibition travel soon to an institution near you? We certainly hope so, and uh, you all are just going to have to wait and see. Nilu, a warm and overdue welcome to Dressed. Nilu, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah. So um, I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today, as Stephen Sprouse is actually one of my all-time favorite designers, and he's definitely a name that's probably going to be lesser known to some of our listeners. Um, and even though I did know who he was, it wasn't until 2009 that I 
really kind of fully understood the genius of his work because I was helping out dressing the mannequins for an exhibition of Sprouse's work that was here in New York at Deitch Projects. Um, so you and I have a shared admiration for Sprouse. And, and in, in one fashion or another, we've actually kind of been in conversation about doing something on him since before the pandemic. Um, but before we talk about Stephen in detail, I'd love to know how you came to our shared field, and also a little bit about the fashion and textile collection at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. Mm. Okay, sure. So I uh, studied at Syracuse University. I studied uh, fabric design and uh, fashion, and I got my MFA in fibers. And then uh, I did postgraduate work in museum studies program. And uh, then we moved to Indianapolis and I knew about the reputation of Indianapolis Museum Art, of Art and its uh, vast um, and very comprehensive textile collection. So I started volunteering there. And um, um, it, I was just uh, in heaven, you know, working uh, with um, many textiles from all over the world and doing exhibitions. Um, one of the highlights of our collection, it's a 7,000 piece collection, is um, um, uh, the, um, the fashion collection. And oh, wow. it all started yeah. in 1972 uh, with uh, five gifts from the Norman Norell estate, you know. Norma was from Indiana, um, and um, uh, then it really basically kickstart our collection, and we got a few pieces uh, from Austin and um, um, Bill Blass. Also, Bill Blass being from uh, born in Indiana, and Austin, even though he was born in Iowa, he grew up in Indiana, and then went to mm -hmm. Indiana University for one semester. So that was really uh, this is the core of our uh, fashion collection uh, of these uh, Indiana designers. And in um, about 10, 11 years ago, I uh, mounted an exhibition of these three Indiana fashion designers. And to be honest with you, I didn't know much about uh, Sprouse either. I had heard his name, but you know, didn't mm -hmm. know. And we didn't have any pieces in the collection, but I really wanted to include his work because he was the new generation of these Indiana um, designers. And, um, um, and so basically I um, knew that there was uh, the archives and they were still with the family. So I contacted Joanne Sprouse, uh, Stephen's mother, and I said, I'm mounting this exhibition of these uh, Indiana fashion designers, Norell, uh, Blass and Halston, and we don't have any uh, Sprouse pieces in our collection and can we borrow pieces? So our relationship really began then. And she was thrilled um, to include, uh, to have Stephen included in our show because Stephen loved fashion growing up in uh, Columbus, uh, Indiana. Um, and then having, um, I mean, showing tremendous, tremendous interest in, um, in fashion, you know, looking through his mother's magazines and designing outfits for her, making outfits for her. So he was really a prodigy. And when he was 14, his father took him to Chicago and then he was recommended At 14. <laughs> uh, for, um, uh, for them to go and meet with Bill Blass in New York. Then he interns for Bill Blass, I think it's 64 and 65. Uh, I mean, sometime then, you know, it's maybe 65, 66 for two summers. And then he ends up working with Halston. Mm -hmm. 
So Joao Sprouse felt that Stephen needs to be with the other three Indiana designers. And we are just thrilled to be the stewards of this collection. It's a vast collection. It's about 10,000 pieces. Yeah, there are 6,000 Polaroids. I mean, Stephen just loved taking Polaroids. Um, And um, we have uh, garments, uh, men, uh, women's, men's. We have accessories, boots, shoes, um, tights, uh, jewelry, uh, fabric remnants, um, and a lot of videos, runway videos. So... um, yeah, it's wonderful to have them all together in one place. And uh, then we're in the, still in the um, midst of processing everything. It's it's a huge collection. Right. So uh, that we have everything and then eventually everything will be on our website. A lot of sketches, maybe maybe at least a thousand mm-hmm. sketches. He just drew and drew. So sketched and... Um, um, yeah, I mean, it's a huge collection. <laughs> well, and as curators, that is a dream come true, right? Um, especially when you're curating from your own collection and you have that wealth of different types of materials to really flesh out the entire story, um, which is what your exhibition does. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit more in a second. Um, but I'd love to know more um, about the working relationship that Stephen and Halston had together because he had been interning for these other designers that you mentioned, but most significantly, Halston kind of took him under his wing and Stephen was working for yeah. him more or less as his assistant designer, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Halston realized his genius, and uh, um, he basically, like you said, he took him under his wings, and uh, he learned a lot from Halston: um, cutting, uh, draping, um, uh, using fabrics on a bias, and most of all, Halston's expensive taste, <laughs> which sort of <laughs> was, you know, using cashmere's and the best fabrics, the West wools from Europe. Um, and that was kind of something that maybe uh, I, I think was later on it became difficult for him to survive. But uh, and but he learned a lot, he, he, you know, just working with a genius like Halston. I, I admire his uh, work, Halston's work. He is my favorite American designer because I think he, his work was always uh, so cutting edge and so beautiful. So, yeah. And then it was uh, through him that he... Um, got to meet a lot of celebrities. He went to the clubs. So that really opened a lot of doors for Stephen in making connections. And he got to meet Angelica Houston, and, um, Barbara Streisand, and all the celebrities like Liza Minnelli who worked with him. And then that was really uh, maybe uh, two and a half years, two years of great uh, apprenticeship mm-hmm. because... He learned so much from the master himself. Yeah, well, I mean, Halston is really kind of one of those designers who defined American minimalism um, and is as even as maximalist as Stephen's work could be sometimes. You still see all throughout his career those remnants of his work with Halston. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, A lot of early pieces, um, for example, the uh, dress that he designed for Debbie Harry's Heart of Glass uh, video, that is a one piece with one mm-hmm. seat. It's cut on bias. I mean, it's two layers, but then it just goes, um, you know, just goes around the body one scene and uh, cut one piece of fabric. 
Um, so that that is Halston. That's the hand of Halston. Well, I'm glad you brought up Debbie Harry um, because, as you've already kind of mentioned, via Halston, Stephen met and became part of this very hip downtown scene in New York at that time. Um, he met one of his heroes, Andy Warhol. Um, and if some of our listeners aren't particularly familiar with that moment in time and the kind of like late 1960s, early 1980s in New York, would you tell us a little bit about what was going on then and who were some of the players and how did the title of your exhibition, Rock, Art, and Fashion, figure into all of this? <laughs> okay. All right. Let me just start from uh, rock art fashion. Um, I I knew I wanted to um, title it Steven Sprouse, but I needed a, another line, a tagline. And um, so I was watching a lot of videos. And in one of his videos, at the very end, he t it's an interview with him. And he, he says, I love rock art fashion, but I'm not good in the first two. So that's why I'm doing fashion. So I said, <laughs> That's that's <laughs> that is the title. So um, basically, um, I think like any young upcoming designer, he was um, he just immersed himself in the culture of New York. He lived in downtown um, in um, uh, the seventies, and in seventy five, he moved into this building, and uh, uh, he became uh, neighbors with Debbie Harry. But there was a lot happening in the seventies mm -hmm. uh, in, in New York city, there was, and he, there was endless inspiration for him in the uh, streets of downtown and club scenes such as um, um, CBGB where he frequented and a lot of new wave and punk rockers uh, were performing uh, mm -hmm. there. Including Debbie Harry. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. Debbie Harriet, and that's where uh, I think uh, he made a lot of uh, connection. And then he had this uh, circle of friends that comprised of artists, musicians, graffiti artists, uh, and um, these people were the integral part of the flourishing art uh, scene in New York City. So there were all of them, there were great influences uh, on his work. At the, at the beginning, he was doing a lot of uh, photography and um, um, working with this uh, color Xerox machine that he had in his apartment doing art, uh, but he wasn't really successful. He went around and showed portfolios, but wasn't able to get any any shows. Which is kind of interesting. Uh, so he turned to fashion. Yeah, well, I think that's interesting because um, so many of Stephen's friends, after the fact, remarked that Stephen was an artist who was also a fashion designer. So would you tell yeah. us a little bit more about that art that he was making and and did this art inform his fashion and vice versa? Yes, some of it. But, you know, he was making um, color Xeroxes and painting them. He was making in, in 78, uh, I think, but this was a little bit later, um, uh, like Patty Hearst, um, um, free Patty Hearst, uh, he was uh, uh, printing those and making really large uh, paintings of them and uh, doing other uh, things. But, you know, he wasn't really happy with the response. So that's, he decided that making art is not really is his thing. His path forward. <laughs> yeah, yeah, his path forward. So he, he um after he started, uh, you know, after meeting with uh, 
Debbie, you know, becoming neighbors and getting closer to her, he sort of felt that she didn't have the proper rocket rocker uh, outfits. And so he decided making um, stage outfits for her, which she wore and um, really uh, put his name out yeah. there. You know, these things were really edgy, sexy, sort of punk rocky. And um, um, everybody was asking, you know, uh, who is this designer? Because his his ideas and his uh, clothing were so fresh, mm-hmm. you know, so so different from what was uh, out there. Yeah, well, I know Debbie has said in the past that before she met Stephen and before he started designing for for her, that she was kind of just going around to vintage stores and clobbering her mm-hmm. own look together, and that it was really yeah. Stephen who came, who kind of swooped in and polished her up like from head to toe. Um, and that mm-hmm, bias mm-hmm. cut dress that you mentioned earlier in the heart of glass video, um, it's, it's fascinating because it actually does incorporate Steven, some of Steven's work because that's one of the scan line dresses, correct? Sure. Would you tell yeah, us a little yeah, bit how, yeah. about how he was making those prints? Yeah. I mean, he was, uh, I mean, one of the great things that really put him aside was his fabrics. Uh, there were uh, were his fabrics because they were all original designs. He, I mean, these were uh, scan lines, uh, vertical lines that you see uh, the pattern that you see on old TVs. Um, he did um, other patterns uh, based on. Uh, you know, graffiti, which was quite fresh. Nobody was doing that before. Um, some of the camouflage, Warhol's camouflage patterns, his fabrics were made to mm-hmm. order. You know, in a way, couture, they were um, all uh, top of the line quality fabrics that were printed. Um, you know, so it wasn't like run of the mill fabrics. So that that is really what he liked to design his own mm-hmm. fabrics. So those, those, that was one of the original or, originalities about his work is was his fabrics, great quality, bold colors, interesting fabrics uh, that nobody else was using, and that's what really distinct him from uh, other designers of the time. Yeah his original fabrics. Well, in preparing to speak to you, I went back and I was looking at some of the things I had read on the past on Sprouse to kind of like refresh my memory. And I was reminded of this story that makes so much more sense to me now than when I read it the very first time. And that's because we recently did a two-part episode on Vivian Westwood um, with guest Alexander Fury. And we were talking about Mm -hmm. her uh, Westwood's Witches Collection, where she and Keith Haring collaborated on some prints. And yeah. apparently, now this all makes sense, apparently it's because of that collaboration between Haring and Westwood, and there was a, there was an actual contract surrounding this, mm-hmm. that it a- prevented a collaboration between Haring and Sprouse, who, who wanted to work with Haring. And, and yeah. that conflict ended up spawning into the world one of the signature elements of Stephen's work. So would you tell us a little bit about that and and how yeah. those particular fabrics ended up being in the this collection that he showed in 1983 when he was now on his own separate from Holston? Yeah. So um, let me just um, t- t- tell you first about um, his collaboration with Keith because uh, he, he talks about how through Andy he meets um, um, Keith Haring and he said the more 
I got to know Andy, I got to know Keith. And he, as you mentioned, he wanted to collaborate with him because he admired his work, but yeah, he was under contract with um, um, Vivian Westwood. So he, he could not work with Stephen. So this really encouraged him, you know, somebody, I read somewhere that somebody said, why don't you use your own um, uh, graffiti, your own hand? You know, he had a very distinct handwriting and his uh, really um, gift, uh, was being able to write backwards. He could write, uh, you know, regularly and also backwards. Uh, so he used his own handwriting, and that's when he created the first fabrics, uh, graffiti fabrics, uh, for his um, '83 uh, Polaroid show. That's known as the Polaroid show, and then later on in '84 and some in '85. So it's a, it was a theme that he used often he loved it and uh interestingly enough they're um either uh, some of them are lord's prayer some of them are the serenity prayer and there are other ones that are different but uh so that that became his signature um look and i want to say that he is maybe the first american designer to use graffiti i mean if not the first he's really um, one of the first ones to use graffiti on his mm -hmm. fabrics. Well, it's it's fascinating yeah. because some of these elements that Stephen introduced so early on in 1983 and 1984 remained fixtures through his collections mm -hmm. throughout the rest of his career and be kind of were definitive of his particular style. What were some of these other elements besides the graffiti prints? The graffiti prints, um, I think... The use of um, bold colors, um, neon, day glow colors, mm -hmm. uh, is really um, are um, really signature um, uh, elements of his work. His um, he designed uh, unisex clothing. He was very much influenced by another idol of mine, uh, Rudy Gernreich. Mm -hmm. And you know the concept of head to toe was so much really the uh, use of very simple twenties inspired silhouettes uh, was also Rudy and then uh, uh, Stephen liked that and um, the um, again uh, the original fabrics that he designed not only you know the graffiti ones. But, you know, getting permission from NASA in 85 to use um, images that were taken from the moon and Saturn and then incorporating them into his fabrics and um, uh, really innovative stuff, very, very, very cutting edge uh, um, pieces that really put him aside from other what was going on in New York City during um, 70s, I mean, 80s mostly. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of head to toe looks, um, let me tell you um, putting the tights with the boots that are still attached to them on the mannequins for the shows, yeah. I don't think I need to explain that to you. Oh. It was difficult. Oh my God. Um, and just for our listeners to clarify, when we're talking about shoes, these aren't just regular old shoes. What we're talking about here are shoes that actually are like pantyhose as well. So, mm -hmm. they, so they're, yeah, it's all yeah. attached. It's all seamless. They sure. aren't separate pieces. Yes. So what was happening is in these head to toe looks is that the print on the dress matched the print that were on the hose that went all the way down to the shoes. They're, they're really right. spectacular looking and striking when you see them in person. Would you tell us a little bit more about some of these head-to-toe looks that he really became known for? 
Yeah, I mean, as you said, the shoes were really difficult to mount, but because we have so many shoes that goes with the outfits, I didn't feel that we can not show them. So our team went to work about a year before um, the actual uh, opening, um, even before the dressing of the mannequins that uh, fitted every shoe, tried to fit every shoe. So there was a lot of ma mannequin modification. We took heels out. We, you know, built uh, fake legs, mm -hmm. you know, to, uh, so, you know, and even though when you put a shoe on a mannequin, you know, sometimes they stand really funky. So the toes are like tipping up. So a lot of, a lot of work went to, um, even, you know, the, the dressing and, you know, for other, um, um, uh, silhouettes that were kind of hard to work some some were easy some just you know you just drop them on the mannequin then they are there but yeah it, it, it's been it was a difficult show for our crew and especially when we got the collection uh it had been in storage since Stephen's death in 2004 uh until 2019 when they arrived at the museum uh, for 15 years, they were in cardboard boxes right. so they were all wrinkled you know there were some um some mold issues and you know so um a lot of them needed some uh tender loving mm -hmm. care to just get the uh, you know uh creases out and get them into a better shape but now they're hanging in our store they're taking a lot of space but we love having them um but yeah so there was a lot of work that went into getting this exhibition there. yeah and i'm sure these were really expensive the shoes were made in italy some of the fabrics some of the wools were uh, made in um, Italy. So that all added to the cost mm -hmm. of uh, of uh, these garments. I mean, his prices were mm -hmm. high, you know, and for 80s, uh, you know, New York City, they were, they were about the same prices as European mm -hmm. couture. Well, you know, it, it, it's uh, interesting. Uh, fashion industry veteran and, and a friend of Stephen's, Candy Pratt's Price, once said that Stephen didn't just stir the pot, he shook it up. <laughs> As you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. So, you know, up until like 1983, 1984, kind of what he had been doing on his own, um, separate from Halston, had kind of been more one-off underground stuff. Um, but when did the 
fashion industry sit up and take notice of Sprouse's work and what was their reaction? So he got his uh, uh, first break in um, um, 1983. And um, uh, this was a very small uh, exhibition or a show um, that he presented about 15 pieces. Mm -hmm. And uh, this uh, was a show of emerging fashion designers that uh, promoted the new Polaroid um, SX-70 um, camera and I, I had one of those. I uh, <laughs> they were so popular, so it became the Polaroid show. And in this exhibition, in this uh, show, uh, Vivian Tam and Anna Sui uh, also um, participated. And um, uh, Stephen showed a small uh, fifteen-piece capsule collection, and um, that's when he showed some of the graffiti, and that's where he. Um, everybody noticed him. He was really, really, um, he would put on the map mm -hmm. by this show. And then he gained confidence and uh, then he presented his first, uh, you know, major uh, or full um, runway show in uh, 1984. And uh, that's when he, his first graffiti prints, degolo dresses and jackets and tights and um, all uh, the, all their futuristic sort of feel uh, burst onto the runway, and um, it was really popular yeah. and became a hit. Uh, so, yeah, and I think at the same time he also received the Cody Award for the fashion emerging fashion designer, the new fashion designer in uh, in eighty four. So he has all eyes on him at this point, right? And now he's really yeah. beginning to produce commercially. So how were his clothes retailed? What did that kind of landscape look like? Well, he, um, obviously he did not have a studio then. So he um, uh, produced these lines in 84 and um, um, they were, um, I think, uh, a, a majority of them again the fabrics that came from Italy the shoes and everything so in 84 he presented this uh, uh, I mean other collection and um, uh, he got a lot of um, um, uh, positive um, reviews by the uh, fashion editors the buyers the store buyers and the fashionistas and everybody else and then uh, some of the uptown or some of the more upscale um, stores in New York City, such as Bergdorf Goodman, Henry Bendel, um, they had uh, carved out a small niche in their um, stores, and they were, you know, he his, he was selling through these uh, department mm -hmm. stores. Which is fascinating because he what aesthetically what he's producing is this very underground club kid style, but with the mm -hmm. utmost attention to details and materials, which he probably learned from Holston. Um, and and mm -hmm. it, a friend of his once said, it was like he created the haute couture version of street trash. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. Yeah. It, it, I mean, the level of manufacturing was at couture mm -hmm. level. The fabrics, the uh, workmanship, the, you know, just attention to detail and everything was at the prices at the couture level. So that's really what um, was not in his favor because uh, they were so expensive that um, the downtown sort of the hip um, um, group or, you know, fashionistas could not afford mm -hmm. them. 
And I mean, the first season, yeah, you know, they were sold out. But then afterwards, you know, um, the up-down uh, crowd wasn't really buying. So a lot of merchandise wasn't moving. And then he was uh, dropped uh, uh, by 85. I think he basically stopped making fashion because they weren't selling. And he had a lot of problem with getting his pieces in for the season because everything was late coming from Italy. Everything had, everything was made to order fabrics were printed uh, to order and then he would miss the seasons or he was late for the um fall season when department stores are stocking you know they're bringing merchandise and his weren't there because they were stuck somewhere so it, it was hard you know for him to create fall fashion spring you know every season um um like every few months, uh, he didn't have a huge uh, sort of support or a group of people who worked for him. And and maybe maybe like ultimate commercial success was never really his goal. Um, Another friend of his, Kim Hastreeter, once said that Stephen was a non-commercial being. He longed for success and recognition. He was uncompromising in his vision. So he wanted the world to bend to him, not for himself to bend to the world. Um, So this this was somewhat problematic in his commercial success. Um, But at the same time, a little bit later after he got dropped from all these department stores, Stephen kind of reached what might be considered an all-time high. He had a boutique that then opened afterwards in Soho at 99 Wooster Street. Would you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about this store? Because it was a very much immersive experience, which was a novel concept at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. He was a non-compromising designer. Um, he would not do what was the trend. Uh, he, did not, he did not follow the other New York designers. He had his own ways and his colors and his silhouettes. And um, yeah, and so uh, that, that was a problem. So basically, after um, 1985 collections, uh, one of them never went in, into production. And everything, um, I mean, he had some um, uh, sample pieces and his other stuff. So in 85, he basically went bankrupt. And everything was auctioned off. And then uh, in 86, 87, he uh, collaborated, uh, I mean, with the backing of uh, Andrew Kogan, uh, he uh, designed um, uh, a, a new building. You know, they, they bought this building in 99 Wooster Street. And he it was a three-floor building. And they completely redesigned it. And... Uh, in uh, 1987, they opened um, that uh, huge boutique, uh, um, uh, and uh, he showed um, all his collections there. And all, by all his collections, I mean the first level. It was um, the S collection, the ones that has uh, the, the label has an S. So this was the uh, lowest um, um, sort of entry level, some of the least expensive material. The second floor was more expensive, and the third level in that building was where he sold the top of the line, the really really expensive stuff. And um, he was successful for a couple of years, but then um, the uh, sales weren't that great and he had to close that store again. I mean, this business again. So this was the second time that he went bankrupt, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But 
for this um, uh, opening, he again showed uh, some of the most iconic uh, pieces. And uh, one of them, one of the group would be uh, in 87, uh, just before uh, um, Hulst, just before Andy died, he gave permission to Stephen to use his camouflage print uh, for his uh, fabrics, mm -hmm. uh, fabrics, and uh, uh, so that's where he debuted the camouflage um, dresses, and um, these were a huge hit because they were um, uh, the patterns of the camouflage that was designed by, that was painted by um, Andy Warhol. Mm -hmm. So, and some of the other Warhol pieces are. Additionally, collaborations with Jean-Michel Basquiat that ended up in Stevens Fabrics as well. This was uh, an homage to his good friend um, Andy Warhol, where he got uh, permission from um, uh, Andy Warhol Foundation to uh, go back into the archives and use about seven, eight uh, um, images uh, that Andy had created some of his paintings uh, like the, there's one dress that is based on the Empire State um, the si silent film that um, Andy produced and then there are a few pieces um, that are based on Andy's and Jean-Michel Basquiat's collaboration between 82 and 85 when they were working together and creating canvases. So there are a few of those that have uh, appeared on his fabrics. Mm -hmm. Well, so with two past failures under his belt, Stephen remained a fashion industry darling from a critical standpoint, and friends and industry players believed in his talent so much that again and again and again, they just kept trying to jumpstart his career. Um, Ellen Saltzman at Bergdorf Goodman was one of those people. Mark Jacobs was another um, and, and these two endeavors, the Bergdorf Goodman Collection and the Mark Jacobs partnership, they were met with varying degrees of success. Would you tell us a little bit about each of those? Yeah, he designed a line in the early 90s for Bergdorf Goodman. Um, but um, and that was, you know, it, it, uh, things didn't sell very well. So that was not a very successful uh, endeavor. But uh, perhaps... Um, Really, what kickstart his um, um, his um, career again was his collaboration with Louis Vuitton, when um, his name was in the forefront of everything. When uh, there are interviews with uh, Mark Jacobs, when he talks about wanting to do something different with this old, um, like a hundred some year old logo, and he wanted to deface it. And, uh, and he was thinking, you know, whose hand he wants on these. And uh, because he knew Stephen from his years in New York City, uh, that was the, his, the first person um, that um, um, they talked, I mean, he thought about. So uh, he invited Stephen to go to Paris. He was there for a week and uh, uh, they came up with the iconic Sprouse um, Louis Vuitton. Uh, bags that were quite exciting, really um, uh, turned around, you know, the, this whole image of very stuffy Louis Vuitton uh, logo and gave it a new life. And uh, so that was a huge success mm -hmm. for him, uh, put his name back uh, in the forefront. And then in 2002 came the collaboration with Target. Mm -hmm. 
So that was a huge uh, success. And he always, he talked about wanting to have great passion for the masses. Mm -hmm. And that's really what he felt that he was doing and was very happy to working for Target. And that was a big uh, uh, line too for Target uh, about 21 years ago. So yeah, 2002. Yeah. So that's interesting yeah. because it wasn't until kind of like the tail end of, of his career that we start to see him actually have some commercial success. But all along, he was perennially the recipient of critical praise. So what do you think that disconnect was there? Why was commercial success eluding him in the early and mid portion of his career? Well, I think the biggest um, uh, problem was the prices. You know, mm -hmm. and that was really what um, uh, and we talked about that, that people who could afford them uh, weren't buying them. And those people who really liked to have them couldn't afford them. And the other one was meeting production production. The other one was uh, meeting production deadlines, you know, and, and getting things in. And just a lot of personal problems, too, that um, uh, was just too much for one person. Well, you know, too, also, I would argue that Stephen's work was like perhaps just too far ahead of its time in the 80s and the 90s. People weren't quite ready for it or mainstream consumers weren't quite ready for it yet. Um, and, 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 it, and looking at it now, it's hard to believe that it was made in the 80s and the 90s because it feels like contemporary fashion of 2020. Um, so yeah. what do you think that Stephen's legacy was to contemporary fashion today? Well, I think, uh, he, his legacy, you can still see it in many of the, uh, designers. I think, um, the head to toe, the use of graffiti or these patterns are still, um, used, um, a few years ago, there were quite a few designers, maybe six, seven years ago now, it just escapes me, but they were presenting, um, um, runway uh, shows that were head to toe. They were these brilliant um, sort of um, bold neon colors. So you can still see some influences. And, um, you know, some of the dresses that he designed, uh, for example, uh, Kim Kardashian was wearing um, a silhouette that he designed um, for his 99 collection for Kate Moss. And so there's a picture of Kate Moss and uh, something that um, Kim Kardashian was wearing. So there's a lot of, uh, still a lot of influence, um, you know, a lot of um, designers look at his work. Absolutely. It's so funny when I bring up yeah. Stephen's name, sometimes I'll be like, do you know who that is? And like, I have no idea who you're talking about. I'm like, actually you do already know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Because as soon as I mentioned the Louis Vuitton graffiti bags, they're like, Oh mm -hmm. yeah, I know who that is. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So that, that's really, um, that's really something. I mean, it brought him, but it was too late. He was basically, um, and when he found out he had lung cancer, it was too late and he tried to get help, but it was just too um, progressive and um, there was nothing that could be done. So we, we lost him. It was very early, unfortunately. I think he was only 50. But I think this is going to open the eyes of, of, of some of our listeners to be like, oh, I've never even heard of this person. And I see so clearly now how influential mm -hmm. he was 40 years ago on contemporary fashion yep. today. 
So Nilu, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Nilu, thank you so much for not only your insights into Sprouse's work, but also this very real preservation of his legacy at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. April, you know, it's funny because you two were discussing how many designers continue to reference Stephen's work. And this has happened so many times, it's hard to keep count. It's true. <laughs> Our listeners may recall the all one pant tight boot combo, which was a defining element of Sprouse's head to toe works of the 1980s. Some of you might be familiar with the fact that Balenciaga has now riffed on this look season and season again since 2017. And even now, Forever 21 has knocked it off. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there's like a pretty major price point difference there of about uh, $35 for a pair on sale at Forever 21 currently, and about $3,000 for a pair of the Balenciaga ones. (laughs) But um, really, truly, all of this being said, Cass, Sprouse's combination of the tights with the built-in boots were his actual own homage to Rudy Gernrich's head-to-toe pant boot looks of the 1960s. So... It seems like the wheel of fashion will just keep on turning. And on that note, dress listeners, I think today the wheel stops for now. So may you consider where true innovation lies or doesn't in your closet next time you get dressed. Dress listeners, be sure and tune in Thursday for a Fashion History Now episode, where of course we bring you things like events, exhibitions, books, and other happenings in fashion history today. And actually next week, we are going to be bringing you a two-part interview with one of Stephen Sprouse's dear friends, and that is Halston model and muse Chris Royer, who has actually been really instrumental in keeping Halston's legacy alive to this very day. So you will not want to miss it. In the meantime, we do love hearing from you, and we have a new email address, which is hello at dressedhistory.com, as is also our website, now located at dressedhistory.com. Our Instagram remains the same, at dressed underscore podcast, and you can DM us there, and you can also find images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. If you want to find the Instagram content specifically connected to this episode, you can check out the hashtag dressed 299. That's dressed and the numbers 299. You can find us on Facebook at Dressed Podcast and more Dressed coming your way on Thursday. Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of Dressed Media.